Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So Cassidy Hutchinson thought her lawyer was more interested in defending Trump than in defending her. The lead starts right now. In their own words, stunning testimony revealed in new transcripts out yesterday and today from the January 6th committee. Star witnesses, star witness Cassidy Hutchinson among them, admitting she was pressured to not talk by her first lawyer, paid by the Trump super PAC. And her final straw was with him when he suggested she risk a contempt of Congress charge. What more might we learn from the committee's final report? Plus... Nightmare before Christmas, snow, ice, and a dangerous Arctic blast, thousands of flights canceled, possible deaths, where the weather may have been a contributing factor. And forget Siri, forget Alexa, see the future of artificial intelligence, the powerful and alarming content that technology can create all on its own. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We begin today in our politics lead in a treasure trove of interview transcripts newly released from the January 6th committee's long-awaited and still, as of right now, unreleased final report, including the full testimony from the panel's star witness, former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson, in which she details pressure from her first Trump-aligned lawyer, Stefan Passantino, to not cooperate with the committee, even at the risk of being held in contempt of Congress. Hutchinson telling the committee, quote, it wasn't just that I had Stefan sitting next to me. It was almost like I felt like I had Trump looking over my shoulder. Hutchinson also testifying that she told her mother, quote, I'm effed in the days leading up to her very first interview with the committee, fearing that Trump allies would ruin her life if she was open and honest with the committee. Other transcripts show leading figures in Trump's scheme to overturn the 2020 election, despite all sorts of grandiose pronouncements, repeatedly invoking their Fifth Amendment rights and refusing to answer any questions from the committee. CNN Sarah Murray is digging into all the transcripts for us, which are revealing for the first time intriguing new aspects about the committee's closed doors disposition. New details about the pressure campaign a blockbuster witness faced. I overheard the president say something to the effect of, you know, I, I don't effing care that they have weapons. They're not here to hurt me. Take the effing mags away. As she fought to share details from inside the Trump White House with the House Select Committee investigating January 6th. Former White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson told the committee her previous attorney, who CNN first identified as former White House ethics lawyer Stefan Passantino, allegedly encouraged her to mislead Congress, according to newly released transcripts from a pair of September interviews. The less you remember, the better, Passantino said, according to Hutchinson's testimony. And he allegedly advised her to stop talking to the committee, saying contempt is a small risk. Hutchinson told the committee Passantino never explicitly told her to lie. I don't want you to perjure yourself, Passantino told her, according to her testimony. But I don't recall isn't perjury. They don't know what you can and can't recall. We are concerned 
that these efforts may have been a strategy to prevent the committee from finding the truth. The Hutchinson transcripts come as the public awaits the release of the January 6th committee's full report, slated to come today. Expect to do it sometime this afternoon. (laughs) And what do you expect the American people to learn from this report? Well, I think they'll see that it's very comprehensive. It's expected to offer more details about Trump's efforts to overturn the 2020 election and could offer new insights around this moment, revealed by Hutchinson, where Trump was allegedly told he couldn't go to the Capitol on January 6th. The president reached up towards the front of the vehicle to grab at the steering wheel. Mr. Engel grabbed his arm, said, sir, you need to take your hand off the steering wheel. Mr. Trump then used his free hand to lunge towards Bobby Engel. And Mr. when Mr. Renato had recounted this story to me, he had motioned towards his clavicles. Hutchinson says her former attorney, Passantino, encouraged her to steer clear of sharing that bombshell moment. While Hutchinson faced pushback after her testimony, she stuck with her account in subsequent committee interviews, saying Deputy White House Chief of Staff Tony Ornato later made sarcastic comments about the incident, like, it could be worse. The president could have tried to strangle you on January 6th. Ornato told the committee he didn't recall the communications with Hutchinson and had no knowledge of Trump's anger. Now, Hutchinson also detailed how she felt like she needed to stay loyal to the former president, that Trump's allies in Pasatino were saying she would be taken care of if she remained loyal. Now, Pasatino, in an earlier statement to CNN, said that he believed he represented Cassidy Hutchinson ethically and that she was honest and cooperative with the committee during the period that he was representing her. Of course, Jake, she obviously later got new counsel and provided all of this information to the committee. Yeah, hers was a journey, for, a journey. without question. Sarah Murray, stay with me for a second, because add to that, sources telling me that the members of the House Select Committee are expressing concerns that former President Trump and his allies are desperately trying to keep secret what happened in that presidential SUV known as the Beast on January 6th, whatever it was. As you may recall, Cassidy Hutchinson, Cassidy Hutchinson told the committee behind closed doors that she was told by then Deputy Chief of Staff Tony Ornato in front of Secret Service agent Bobby Engel that in the Beast, then President Trump on January 6, 2021, quote, tried to wrap his hands around Bobby's neck and strangle him because he wouldn't take him to the Capitol. Hutchinson also testified behind closed doors that when meeting with her first attorney, then Trump super PAC paid attorney Stefan Passantino, his response to her desire to tell the truth about that story, about what Ornato told her, quote, I remember he like sat back in his chair and he's like, no, 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 no. We don't want to go there. We don't want to talk about that, unquote. Hutchinson later dropped Passantino for fear that he was more concerned about protecting Trump than protecting her. Now, the people who can confirm whatever happened in the Beast, the driver and Bobby Engel and Tony Renato, who was allegedly told by Engel about what happened in the Beast, have all retained private attorneys, not using those provided at no cost to them by the U.S. Secret Service. That fact is something that members of the committee clearly find suspicious. In private testimony, the committee revealed Ornato said he could not recall conveying that story to Hutchinson or conveying it to another White House employee who said that Ornato told him a similar story. The committee said it is, quote, skeptical of Ornato's account, unquote. Soon we will all see for ourselves what's in the actual transcripts and what the driver and Ornato and Engel all actually said under oath, if anything. Sarah Murray is still with me. Let's bring in CNN Senior Justice Correspondent Evan Perez on this. And, and, and Evan, is there a role for the Justice Department here when we have contradictory testimony under oath about what happened inside the presidential SUV? There absolutely is, especially if, you know, again, what, what Cassidy Hutchinson has, te- has 
provided uh, testimony to is something that she was essentially being told to lie to the committee. That is a crime. And uh, that is something the Justice Department is absolutely uh, would be interested in, in investigating. We know from the committee that they have, you know, even in the middle of all this, they turned over information to prosecutors. And so we know that they have at least interviewed uh, Cassidy Hutchinson. So they have a lot of what exactly went on behind the, behind the scenes, including what, what her accounts are with her attorney. They already know a lot of this. So what, just to just stay on this for one second, according to her testimony, uh, Passantino told her, you can say that you don't remember stuff, even if you, you remember a lot of it. I'm not a lawyer, but that doesn't sound ethical to me. At a minimum, it sounds unethical. I mean, it could be a crime. It depends on, on again, some of the, the, the facts. Um, we know, Jake, though, that a lot of people who were working with the former president, people who you know, just wanted to stay out of this, and so they misremembered or didn't remember things, and we see that throughout. We've seen this through m- multiple Trump investigations. It's a feature. And, and uh, Sarah, the pressure campaign on Cassidy Hutchinson to get her to not fully comply with the probe yep. by this attorney paid for by a Trump super PAC. Um, and she's not the only one. Is this something the Justice Department is looking into? Is this potentially criminal? I mean, it sounds like obstruction of, of justice in some ways. Yeah, I mean, I think that that is part of the reason, you know, the Justice Department wants these transcripts for a lot of reasons. But I think, you know, when we think about the top line referrals that the committee made about Donald Trump, you know, DOJ is like, yeah, that's fine. You know, we're doing our own Trump investigation. But when it comes to trying to encourage a witness to lie to Congress, to lying to Congress, to trying to tamper with a witness. All of that stuff is stuff that DOJ can prosecute. I think the issue that they are going to have is trying to corroborate some of these things. You know, Cassidy Hutchinson may recall her conversations with Stefan Passantino, but if she doesn't have, you know, notes she was taking from that time, recording she was taking from that time, other people who can help corroborate it, then it becomes an issue for DOJ. Is this a case that we can actually prosecute, that we can actually win? Although he's taken leave from his law firm, right, Stefan Passantino? He has. You know, he said that uh, it was a distraction so that he was stepping back in the meantime. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Um, Evan, uh, Hutchinson also expressed concern that committee investigators at times weren't asking the right questions. She said they weren't asking me the right questions. What do we know about that? Well, in the transcripts, what emerges is that she is concerned clearly that her lawyer is not helping the situation. So she reaches out to a friend who who then back channels to the committee to make sure they ask the right questions. She clearly has a lot of information that she wanted to give to the committee, but she, but clearly was not being asked the right way. And so uh, as a result of that, she was, uh, you know, she was asked the right questions, which apparently surprised her lawyer, Passantino, uh, who did not know that this was going to come this way. And so uh, it really gives you a sense, Jake, of the importance of this witness and someone who clearly had a lot of information, perhaps damaging information on the former president and people around him, and wanted to provide that. And, you know, she was being blocked, clearly, by the people she was surrounded by, including, uh, according to her, by her by her lawyer. Yeah. And she also said she wanted to find out who was paying for the lawyer so she could thank him. And Passantino allegedly said, uh, we're not going to tell we're you. Not telling we're we're you. not going to tell you. That's not fishy at all. All right. Well, thanks. I mean, that, that's also unethical. You have to say that. Right. It's super bizarre. Sarah Murray, Evan Perez, thanks. To both of you, after a wrinkle threatened to derail the mammoth $1.7 trillion spending bill, the omnibus spending bill, needed to avoid a government shutdown tomorrow, a last-minute deal pushed that massive bill through the Senate in a bipartisan vote just a few hours ago. The legislation now heads to the House of Representatives, where Democrats are hoping to vote on final passage later tonight. Then it goes to President Biden to be signed. CNN Chief Congressional Correspondent Manu Raju is live for us on Capitol Hill. Manu, an amendment from Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, on Title 42 
having to do with the, the border, was responsible for the holdup. How did Democrats get around that? Well, they actually had their own alternative proposal that they knew would fail, but they wanted to give an opportunity for the members who were considering voting for that Mike Lee plan to vote for the alternative immigration plan. So they agreed to do that. So the Mike Lee plan did not have enough amendment votes. They were concerned that it would get an adopted to the larger bill and that would have sunk in the House. And then that bill, fa- that amendment failed. The other one did as well. Now, this all came as a bipartisan majority supported this bill on final passage. 68 to 29 was the final vote in the the Senate. There were 29 Republicans who voted against it, but the Republican leadership in the Senate supported it. And even though the House Republican leaders urged Mitch McConnell not to support this plan, urging him to punt it into the new year, he disagreed with that approach. I asked Senator Majority Leader Chuck Schumer about the new dynamic in the new Congress, and he had said he planned to talk with Kevin McCarthy if he's elected Speaker, and he warned him about the next fiscal fight ahead. Senator, you're heading into a new political dynamic next year with Republicans taking the House. First of all, what, what discussions have you had with Kevin McCarthy ahead of next year? And what is your level of concern in dealing with an issue like raising the debt ceiling next year? I'm going to wait till after his election to sit down and talk to him. There's a large chunk of Republicans, perhaps a majority, in the House and the Senate who are not MAGA. And this election showed them, I've heard them, I've talked to them, that following MAGA is like Thelma and Louise going over a cliff. As to the debt ceiling, it's got to be done in a bipartisan way. It always is. A party that tries to hold up the government and demand something in return is going to lose. And some timing news here, Jake. I just talked to House Majority Leader Steny Hoyer as he walked off the House floor. Tomorrow is when the House will vote on final passage of this bill, sending it to the president's desk just hours before the shutdown deadline. They may have to pass a short-term measure to keep the government open, to give them more time to process the paperwork. But final passage on the larger $1.7 trillion bill now tomorrow in the House. And today was also the final press conference for Nancy Pelosi as House, House Speaker, what, what did she have to say? You know, she reflected on her time in office. She talked about the difficulties that she had, some of the more challenging moments, such as sustaining a presidential veto uh, when the Democrat was in president, as Republicans were trying to override a veto. She talked about the Affordable Care Act and also blazing a path for women lawmakers uh, along the way. She also discussed that she planned to still maintain influence in a different way. But she said she would not give advice, not play any role as someone who'd give advice to Democratic leaders, the new Democratic leadership team. And she, when she was asked about advice she would give to Kevin McCarthy, assuming he becomes House Speaker. She said there's no need to offer him any advice. Yeah, Manu Raju on Capitol Hill. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. Baby, it's cold outside. Baby, it's dangerously cold outside. Baby, please don't go outside. Where and when the worst winter weather will hit this holiday weekend. Plus, an impassioned speech by Ukraine's president to U.S. lawmakers will take you to the front lines to see why the aid he wants is so desperately needed. Let's go live to the White House where President Biden is delivering his Christmas address to the nation. How silently, how silently the wondrous gift is given. There's a certain stillness uh, at the center of the Christmas story. A silent night when all the world goes quiet. And all the glamour, all the noise, everything that divides us, everything that pits us against one another. Everything, everything that seems so important, but really isn't. It all fades away in stillness of the winter's evening. And we look to the sky, to a lone star, shining brighter than all the rest, guiding us to the birth of a child, a child 
Christians believe to be the Son of God. Miraculously now, here among us on earth, bringing hope, love, and peace, and joy to the world. Yes, it's a story that's 2,000 years old, but it's still very much alive today. Just look into the eyes of a child on Christmas morning, or listen to the laughter of a family together this holiday season after years, after years of being apart. Just feel the hope rising in your chest as you sing, Hark! the herald angels sing, even though you've sung countless times before. Yes, even after 2,000 years, Christmas still has the power to lift us up, to bring us together, to change lives, to change the world. The Christmas story is at the heart of the Christmas Christian faith. With the messages of hope, love, peace, and joy, they're also universal. It speaks to all of us, whether we're Christian Jewish, Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, or any other faith, or no faith at all, speaks to all of us as human beings who are here on this earth to care for one another, to look out for one another, to love one another. The message of Christmas is always important, but it's especially important through tough times, like the ones we've been through the past few years. The pandemic has taken so much from us, We've lost so much time with one another. We've lost so many people, people we loved. Over a million lives lost in America alone. That's a million empty chairs, breaking hearts and homes all across the country. Our politics has gotten so angry, so mean, so partisan. And too often we see each other as enemies, not as neighbors, as Democrats or Republicans, not as fellow Americans. We've become too divided. But as tough as these times have been, if we look a little closer, we see bright spots all across the country. The strength, the determination, the resilience that's long defined America. We're surely making progress. Things are getting better. COVID law no longer controls our lives. Our kids are back in school. People are back to work. In fact, more people are working than ever before. Americans are building again, innovating again dreaming again. <clears throat> so my hope this Christmas season is that we take a few moments of quiet reflection, find that stillness in the heart of Christmas that's at the heart of Christmas, and look, really look at each other, not as Democrats or Republicans, not as members of Team Red or Team Blue, but as who we really are, fellow Americans, fellow human beings worthy of being treated with dignity and respect, I sincerely hope this holiday, this holiday season will drain the poison that has infected our politics and set us against one another. I hope this Christmas season marks a fresh start for our nation because there's so much that unites us as Americans, so much more that unites us than divides us. We're truly blessed to live in this nation, and I truly hope we take the time to look out, look out for one another, not at one, look for one another. So many people struggle at Christmas. It can be a time of great pain and terrible loneliness. <clears throat> I know, like many of you know, <clears throat> it was 50 years ago this week that I lost my first wife, my infant daughter, in a car accident. My two sons were badly injured when they were out shopping for a Christmas tree. I know how hard this time of year can be. But here's what I learned long ago. No one, 
No one can ever know what someone else is going through, what's really going on in their life, what they're struggling with, what they're trying to overcome. That's why sometimes the smallest act of kindness can mean so much. A simple smile, a hug, an unexpected phone call, a quiet cup of coffee. Simple acts of kindness that can lift a spirit, provide comfort, and perhaps maybe even save a life. So this Christmas, let's spread a little kindness. This Christmas, let's be that, that helping hand, that strong shoulder, that friendly voice, when no one else seems to care for those who are struggling, in trouble, and need. It just might be the best gift you can ever give. Let's be sure to remember the brave women and men in uniform who defend and protect our nation. Many of them, many of them are away from their families at this time of year. Let's keep them in our prayers. You know, and I believe Christmas is a season of hope. And throughout the life of this country, it's been during the weeks of December, even in the midst of some of our toughest days, that some of the best chapters of our story have been written. It was during these weeks, back in 1862, that President Lincoln prepared the Emancipation Proclamation, which he issued on New Year's Day. At Christmas 1941, in the week at, weeks after Pearl Harbor, Franklin Delano Roosevelt hosted Winston Churchill in this White House. Together, they planned the Allied strategy to defeat fascism and autocracy. And it was 1968 that the most terrible year of years, the year of assassination and riot, of war and chaos, that the astronauts of Apollo 8 circled the moon and spoke to us here on Earth. From the silence of space, on a silent night, on a Christmas Eve, they read the story of Christmas creation from the King James Bible. When in the beginning, God created heaven and earth. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. That light's still with us, illuminating our way forward as Americans and as citizens of the world. A light that burned in the beginning and at Bethlehem. A light that shines still today in our own time, our own lives. As we sing, O Holy Night, His law is love and His gospel is peace. May I wish you and for you and for our nation, now and always, is that we'll live in the light, the light of liberty and hope, of love and generosity, of kindness and compassion, of dignity and decency. So from the Biden family, we wish you and your family peace, joy, health, and happiness. Merry Christmas, happy holidays, and all the best of the new year. God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. Thank you. Mr. President, do you think another war is yours? A Christmas address from the President of the United States in the East Room of the White House, talking about the importance of kindness and appreciation. Let's go to CNN's Phil Mattingly. Phil, the President had a, not surprisingly, uplifting message. He acknowledged the hardships many Americans are facing right now. Yeah, and I think it underscores something White House officials have certainly been feeling inside the White House over the course of the last several weeks, where the return to the normal of holiday party after holiday party after holiday party has been welcomed not just because 
they're happening, but because people feel like they are able to do things that they haven't been able to do over the course of the last several years. And to some extent, that extends across the country right now. But I think, you know, interesting, I was texting with a former Biden administration official during that speech, and the response when I asked, what's your sense of kind of how this came to be, was this is pure Biden. And I think to some degree, when you listen to the remarks, obviously the optimism, uh, which he's very much known for when you talk to his advisors, uh, the family elements, the loss elements, his personal loss and his reflections on those who might be uh, dealing with loss and loneliness at this moment in time, but also the importance of the holidays and trying to push forward to, in his view or in his mind, the idea of a a better future ahead. I think there's a genuine belief right now inside the White House in the wake of the course of the last year and how things have rolled out over the course of the last couple of months that they're heading into 2023 in a very good place and a positive place with very real opportunities going forward about policy, about politics, all of those things. That wasn't really what that, this speech was about. This speech was instead about the country to some degree turning a corner and feeling that as a distinct possibility, despite all the times in the past two years where they've said that was about to happen. Now I think there's a genuine belief that is they are right on the cusp of that moment if, if they haven't already turned it. And Christmas, the new year, the time to be able to mark that uh, and point to people to mark that with their own families and their own lives as well, Jake. Yeah, and he noted also, of course, that uh, it was the fifth, just a few days ago, the 50th yeah. anniversary of that horrific car crash, uh, which took the life of his first wife, Nelia and, and his infant daughter, Naomi, and also hurt his, his two sons, uh, Bo and Hunter. Uh, so I would imagine for the president this is a, a, a time of, of sadness as well, given that the season is also associated with one of the worst things that ever happened to him. Yeah, I don't think there's any question about that. And keep in mind, he was delivering remarks at uh, a, a National Guard Reserve uh, center in Delaware named after his late son, Bo, just a few days before that anniversary as well. The loss, obviously, is such a central part of President Biden's life, of his story, of how he got to this point right now. Uh, But I also think the holidays themselves are very much a part of that story. When you read the books that he's written, when you listen to people who know him well, the family element and the ability for somebody who's been in political life for the better part of 50 years to have the holidays to spend with the family, particularly a family uh, that has dealt with so much loss. This is critically important to him, to his family, to how they operate. And I think the sense of trying to share that with others and in the hopes that others might share that inside their own family units or with themselves, uh, I think is very much something you saw the president trying to convey. Yeah. Phil Mattingly at the White House for us. Thank you so much. Coming up, despite Ukrainian President Zelensky's triumphant address that received large bipartisan support, the battle in Ukraine rages on. We're going to go live to Kiev as Zelensky heads home. That's next. Your money is not charity. It's an investment in the global security and democracy that we handle in the most responsible way. Right after Zelensky's powerful address to Congress, a source close to him told me he was very pleased with his visit to Washington and felt, quote, real bipartisan support on Capitol Hill. Despite that, some Republican lawmakers remain opposed to the rising price of U.S. aid to Ukraine as the Pentagon moves forward with its plan to send Ukraine the coveted Patriot missile defense system. A senior U.S. defense official tells CNN the U.S. will start training Ukrainian troops on the complex resource-heavy machine, quote, very soon. In the meantime, CNN's Will Ripley shows us what's happening right now on the front lines in eastern Ukraine. Ukrainians remain defiant in Bakhmut as heavy fighting continues on the outskirts. 
Russian forces still pounding the city as they've been doing for months now, driving most of its 70,000 residents away. These days, it's eerily quiet here, silence broken only by rushing soldiers and Russia's deadly bombardments. Only a handful have stayed, braving the Russian artillery roulette. They gather in underground shelters. Power, water, heating, only available in aid stations like this. There's Wi-Fi, too, a chance to call family, get a warm drink. For Dennis, it's this that keeps him going. We're holding on, surviving, he says. His father stayed behind, and so did he, betting on Ukraine. We hope our soldiers will defend Bakhmut, he says. To make sure they're able to do so, President Volodymyr Zelensky traveled all the way to Washington. To ensure Bakhmut is not just a stronghold that holds back the Russian army, but for the Russian army to completely pull out, more cannons and shells are needed. The Ukrainian president also thanking the U.S. for its support and the decision to supply more advanced anti-aircraft missiles. If your patriots stop the Russian terror against our cities, it will let Ukrainian patriots work to the full to defend our freedom. A predictably less enthusiastic response from Russia. Moscow saying providing patriots will only prolong the war. This is a rather old system, Russian President Vladimir Putin said. Those who are doing this are doing it in vain. Putin's PR machine firing back. The Russian Defense Ministry releasing this video of what it says is a visit by Minister Sergei Shoigo, reassuring frontline troops in Ukraine. Don't fuss, keep calm. Everything is fine, he says. Everything is fine, keep calm. Back in Europe, Zelensky seemingly ending the year on a high, with more military aid on the pipeline. But on the front line, no break. Still no cause for celebration. Now, the details of Zelensky's travel are a closely guarded secret for obvious security reasons, but video has emerged tonight showing him meeting with the Polish president, Andrzej Duda. The obvious way, the safest way to travel back to Ukraine uh, would be to land in Poland, and then he took the train from the Polish border to Kiev, or I should say from Kiev to the Polish border uh, when he traveled to Washington. If he's taking the train this time or another route is unknown, we'll, of course, keep you posted when he pops back up uh, in public here in the capital. Uh, Meanwhile, in the alternate universe, uh, commonly known as Russia, they've actually put out a statement from their top general, Jake, saying that Ukraine has been transformed by the West into a hostile terrorist state. Ukraine has been transformed into a hostile terrorist state, even though, of course, it's Russia that started this war, Russia that bombed civilians, and Russia that has inflicted so much suffering on millions of people across this country that is trying to defend its democracy. Yeah, the Kremlin is in the upside down, as they say. Will Ripley and Kiev, thanks so much for that. American life expectancy has dropped to its lowest level in 25 years. What's behind the deadly drop? That's next. Turning to our health lead right now, as if cold weather, COVID, the flu, RSV, and whatever crud happens to be going around at your kid's school aren't already giving enough parents, giving parents enough to worry about, finding medicine to relieve your sick child's symptoms has sadly become a challenge in too many places. Joining us now to discuss, Dr. Megan Rainey, who, among other things, is an emergency room physician in Rhode Island. Dr. Rainey, always good to see you. Based on the patients you see, what's your advice 
to the parents of sick kids when it is hard in so many places to come by antibiotics and pain medications. This fall and winter feels like the viral season that never ends. It feels like back when my kids were back in daycare for the first time and every week they were coming down with something new. So the first thing is to keep those anti-fever medicines, acetaminophen or Tylenol and ibuprofen, also known as Motrin or Advil, keep those stocked in your house so that you're not running out when your kid gets a fever, desperately trying to find a pharmacy that has it in stock. Have a couple of bottles around, particularly that liquid suspension, which is most difficult to find. Have hydrating drinks too. Pedialyte, Gatorade, something that your kid likes to drink that will help get them through this fever and and this viral season. And then have your pediatrician or urgent care phone number available. Um, Like you said, a lot of what we're seeing right now is nothing that we can treat. It's random viruses that we often see in the fall and that we're just seeing a little earlier and a little stronger. There are some diseases, though, that we can treat. Flu, if your kid is high risk. Obviously, COVID, there are some treatments, particularly if your kid is high risk. And of course, we're seeing increases in strep throat as well. So it's worth getting your kid checked out if they do have a fever and those viral symptoms. Let's turn to our new report from the CDC blaming COVID and drug overdoses for driving life expectancy here in the United States down, in fact, to the lowest level in 25 years. It's now 76.4 years. That follows a big drop in the COVID epidemic year of 2020, a smaller drop in 2021. Tackling that seems to mean focusing on two very different solutions. Isn't COVID turning into a bigger threat to older people, even if they have been vaccinated multiple times? Yeah, so that change in life expectancy is uh, acceleration of a long trend. If we go back to the 1980s, Jake, the United States had almost the same life expectancy as every other developed country that we consider to be our peer. That's been slowly going down over the last three or four decades, and we saw a dramatic decrease over the last two years, thanks in large part to COVID, which of course, was the third leading cause of death for Americans uh, in 2021 um, and in 2020, and which during those years was largely striking those folks who were in middle age. So it was having a really big impact on life expectancy. As we move into this era of being vaccinated, many of us having been infected, we are seeing COVID affect the elderly more, uh, but time will tell how it's going to affect life expectancy going forward. But there's another part to the story about life expectancy. There's actually two other parts. The second part is opioid overdoses. We've seen a 50% increase in opioid overdose deaths over the last couple of years. Again, that existed pre-pandemic, but is killing largely young people. And the third thing is, is that our life expectancy is bad, despite us spending an order of magnitude more money on healthcare. So we've got three different things. We're not, we weren't getting vaccinated. We're... Opioids are too easy to access and are killing too many people. And then our healthcare system needs fixing. Yeah, well, a lot of that money is not going to medicine and physicians, right? It's going to executives of all sorts of firms. Dr. Megan Ranney, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Coming up, the technology that makes Siri and Alexa look like floppy disks and eight tracks. See the new artificial intelligence fooling even the most well-trained eyes. In our tech lead, the next story is about how artificial intelligence is changing our lives. And I'm not talking about asking Siri, what's the weather? Or Alexa, how tall is Mount Everest? I'm also not talking about the Terminator-like robots from Boston Dynamics that can do hardcore parkour. 
This story gets to the challenges AI poses to the heart or, or maybe the head of humanity. Need someone to write a Shakespearean sonnet or a college essay or a company-wide email? There might now actually be an app for that. And as Tom Foreman tells us now, he might have written most of the story. Allowing cars to drive themselves, composing songs that mimic popular artists, and producing this digital painting that took the top award at a Colorado art show. This is all the work of artificial intelligence, computers that don't just do what they're told, but in a sense, think, learn, and create. And right now, ChatGPT is rattling the AI world, turning out stunningly humanoid writing. <laughs> just ask Douglas Rushkoff, a renowned author and professor of media culture. It is writing better um, than, than most of my students write at this point, you know, <laughs> college freshmen. So, yeah, I am impressed with that. How does it work? ChatGPT has been filled, in a sense, with a massive amount of information. Imagine the biggest library you can, then programmed and trained by humans to process and spit it out in conversational phrases. So, ask for 1,000 words on the early days of automobiles, and in seconds it responds... In the late 1800s and early 1900s, automobiles were relatively primitive by today's standards and were primarily used by wealthy individuals or businesses. Ask it to write a sonnet in the style of Jerry Seinfeld. I'm just a stand-up comic telling jokes on stage. I make them laugh, and that's all I do. But sometimes life's a joke. It hits me low. And then I take the mic and say, who knew? It's not perfect, but it can debate, compose essays, solve math problems. Well, that looks right. Write computer code, answer follow-up questions, even admit mistakes. And all that means chat GPT, or more advanced AI like it, could replace people in all sorts of positions. This could potentially save time and resources, but it could also lead to a loss of personal connections and a decline in the quality of these types of interactions. We know that because everything Rushkoff said just there was written by ChatGPT when asked about potential problems with itself. The answer it gave me about the dangers of GPT, that sounded like a pretty good television guest to me, you know? This is genuinely a game changer. This is one of the bits of technology, remember where you heard about it first, because this is going to change your life. It does have some problems still. Its knowledge so far only goes up to 2021 because it's not Googling this information. It has it inside. But they're also working on more advanced versions. Nothing will convince you more of what this does, though, than to look at this, Jake. This is a screen uh, of ChatGPT where I wrote in a simple question here. I said, write a short letter for a software company job application. I'm friendly, like movies, and although I have no computer experience, I once worked at a zoo. Put it in, and in moments, it spits out, Dear employer, I'm writing to express my interest in the software company job opening. Although I have no prior experience in the field of computer science, I'm a quick learner and eager to start my career. One of my strengths is my friendly personality, which I believe would make me a valuable asset. In my previous job at the zoo, I enjoyed interacting with visitors and providing excellent customer service. In my free time, I like watching movies and so on and so forth. This, is, this letter was created right now as we watch. This isn't in a memory bank somewhere. It wrote this using artificial intelligence. It can write essays this way. It can write poetry this way. I had it earlier today. 
write a very touching, sentimental letter to my 93-year-old mother about missing her at Christmas time. Just because I wanted to see if it could do it. And it wrote a very credible letter. This will change your world because suddenly it's going to take a lot of writing, as Rushkoff notes, that maybe we don't always want to do, my mother's letter aside, and say, I will do that for you. And you can write the things you care about. How do you get chat GPT on your... Go online. Just go Google it up and look at it. Look for the many articles that are now being written about it. You link to it. You have to put an email address in. But it's but free? But you can play with it. Right now it's free. You can play with it. But a much, much more powerful version is coming along in the not distant future as far as we know. And that may at some point become something else. But right now is the time to get in there, play with it. It's, it's absolutely mesmerizing. Yeah. And yet, I mean... Part of me is like, something's going to go wrong here. Well, something always goes wrong. <laughs> right? At least it'll be able to tell us why. I just feel like we're at the beginning of the Jurassic Park of yeah, the, the chat GPT. We are. Yeah. Right? Nature finds a way. All right, Tom Foreman, thank you so much. In less than 24 hours, the temperature in Casper, Wyoming dropped 70 degrees to a record low of 42 below zero. 42 below zero. And that's not the only spot receiving this Arctic blast. The nightmare that is creating nationwide right before Christmas. That's ahead. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, as China begins to lift its zero COVID restrictions, death are soaring. It is so bad in China, there are backlogs at the crematorium, though the Chinese government, of course, is telling a much different story. Plus, It's been called the biggest upset of 2022, how one incoming House Democrat beat the Trump-backed Republican in a ruby-red rural district. And leading this hour, the National Weather Service is calling this a -a once-in-a-generation event. Right now, most of the country is feeling the effects of the Arctic blast or the bomb cyclone. Life-threatening cold, shifting east, with temperatures breaking all-time low records. Parts of Wyoming seeing minus 42 degrees without the wind chill factor. And the bomb cyclone is expanding, unleashing blizzard conditions in some places, making travel in some places nearly impossible. More than 2,200 flights have already been canceled today as people try to make it to their holiday destinations. We're going to start with CNN's Lucy Kafanov in Denver, taking a look at Mother Nature's wrath coast to coast. Millions of people experiencing the peak of what the Weather Service is calling a once-in-a-generation type event. Others still bracing. The Arctic blast affecting more than 105 million people across the country. Winter alerts from coast to coast for snow and icy conditions. The dangerous cold has over 150 million people or nearly half the U.S. population under wind chill alerts with below zero wind chills as far south as Texas. In the Midwest, more than a foot of snow and possible blizzard conditions expected. South Dakota's famous Sioux Falls, frozen. In some parts of Kansas, the National Weather Service reporting wind chills below negative 30. There and in the plains, the cold expected to stick around for Christmas weekend, likely making it the coldest Christmas there in roughly 40 years. Your nose hairs literally freeze. Even those used to the cold in Wyoming are feeling the Arctic blast. I mean, it's cold, but when it's negative 20, it's just another level. Slick ice and snow making driving conditions dangerous. Abandoned vehicles, stranded drivers. I want people to have things in their vehicles, uh, kits ready to be deployed if they get stuck in their vehicle somewhere. 
Weather hazards causing road closures in various parts of the country. Zero visibility, making it hard for emergency workers to respond. There's hand warmers, some socks, a beanie, um, and like some hygiene products, and then some water and a blanket. In Colorado, outreach workers trying to provide help and keep people warm. They said it's going to be cold, so I said get off the streets. If it's a real extreme emergency, they they really be right on it. Buses of people seeking shelter at the Denver Coliseum to stay out of the freezing cold. And Jake, I can't emphasize how cold these temperatures are. It might look like things are getting back to normal. The sun is at least out, but it still feels like negative 20 here. The streets are largely empty. Folks are trying to stay out of this cold. It, it, these conditions are incredibly dangerous. The city of Denver even opening up new warming centers to keep people safe. There is some good news on the horizon. However, we are expecting the temperatures to start lifting by tomorrow and by Christmas Day. It could be as high as 50 degrees here. Of course, there is not as much relief in sight for the rest of the country. Jake. All right, Lucy Kafanov, go inside. Go inside, Lucy. Thanks so much. CNN aviation correspondent Pete Montine is at Chicago's O'Hare Airport. He is inside. Pete, today was supposed to be the busiest pre-Christmas travel day, but hundreds of flights have been canceled and the problems seem to be shifting east. We're talking hundreds of cancellations today, Jake. Hundreds more tomorrow. Just check Flight Aware. We're talking 2,229 cancellations. It goes up every moment across the U.S. 6,500 flight delays. Denver tops the nation for flight cancellations right now, followed here by Chicago O'Hare, then Chicago Midway. One in every four flights has been canceled here out of O'Hare today. And that is so big because this airport is crucial for connecting flights. It is a huge hub for American Airlines. It is the biggest hub for United Airlines. I just got a tour of United Airlines Network Operations Center, and it says it's scrambling there to try and save some of these connecting flights to keep passengers' trips from falling apart, putting them on different connecting flights out of different hubs. I want you to listen to United VP of Network Operations, Joe Hines. He says, it's the snow here plus the cold that is making things so difficult for the airline and driving these delays. Winter operations like this, temperature, wind, snow, it's going to drive delays. Well, we know the challenges. We have experience around the winter storms. There's only so much you can do. We'll, we'll operate. We'll operate slowly, but we will operate safely. The single best tip from airlines and from travel experts, download your airline's app. That is the best way to get up-to-the-moment information about your flight's delays or cancellations. If those do come to pass, hopefully not. Tomorrow, things could be pretty bad. We've already seen 1,600 flights canceled across the U.S., according to FlightAware. Jake. All right, I'm downloading right now, uh, Pete, just so you know. I'm downloading my airline right now. <laughs> Will the cancellations have a ripple effect into the weekend? Because that's when my flight is. Yeah, you know, that is a great question. Uh, tomorrow is when things are going to get really tough here at Chicago O'Hare United says, because that is when the cold really sets in and the temperatures will plummet here. The high here tomorrow, two degrees Fahrenheit. That makes it especially hard for ground crews to work out in that. Marshall planes, we're talking about loading bags. It's hard just to even get the airplane out of the gate. So we will see as this goes on. United thinks its operation will be recovered by Saturday. All right, Piemontine, as always, very helpful at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport. Thank you so much. I want to bring in meteorologist Derek Van Dam. He's in the CNN Weather Center. Derek, where is the biggest threat in the next 24 hours? 
Yeah, th this is a multifaceted storm. We're hearing our reporters on the ground talk about so many avenues of this, but kind of to summarize it as best as possible and as succinctly as possible, it's all about the blizzard and the Arctic air. It's those combinations that are really working together to create this recipe for a real travel headache and uh, just in time for the holidays. This is the Winter Storm Severity Index from the National Weather Service. And I want to highlight these areas of red right along the west coast of the lower peninsula of Michigan and then just outside of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. This is when you factor in the significant winds and snow, uh, the visibility being reduced to nearly zero and also the potential for power outages and flash freezes because of this Arctic air that's settling in. Those are the areas that will get hit the hardest. Of course, the impacts from this storm being felt from coast to coast, top to bottom. You can see the wind chill alert stretching from the border of Canada all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. And mind you, these are places in the deep south that don't normally get this cold. So the potential here to see below freezing temperatures for over three days exists in places like Jackson, Mississippi, Birmingham, Alabama, Houston, you'll have nearly two days with temperatures below that freezing mark. So that means you not only need to protect your family, but also your house. You want to get those pipes covered uh, to prevent any kind of damage to your home. Check this out. This is important as well. When we're talking about wind chill values of negative 45, right? That is cold, but in five minutes time on exposed skin, you can get frostbite. And if you look at some of these numbers that have come into the uh, weather center here in uh, Atlanta, we're talking about negative 76 degree wind chill temperatures in Casper, Wyoming. That certainly exceeds that threshold for frostbite within a five minute period. So who's next from this Arctic blast? Well, pay attention to this because uh, Nashville, you're sitting at 50 degrees, your wind chill 45. Let me advance this. This is in a matter of six hours. You're dropping nearly 30 degrees. Atlanta, you're next. And that Arctic air presses all the way to the East Coast. Jake, you've right, got Derek. a really clever, clever writer on your side. You said it was twas the nightmare before Christmas. This is truly it. All right, Derek Van Dam in the CNN Weather Center. Thanks so much. How one incoming congresswoman beat the Trump-backed Republican in a ruby red district without any help from Democratic Party leaders. Her story's next. Then, a terrifying look at the new Taliban crackdown in Afghanistan targeting women and girls. Stay with us. Topping our politics lead on this Thursday, one of Washington state's newest members of Congress ran on a familiar message, reduce government regulations, get tough on crime. While those might stereotypically sound like Republican campaign flat platform points, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez is a Democrat and tough to pigeonhole. In a solidly red district, she also put abortion rights at the forefront of her campaign, as well as reducing the cost of child care. She narrowly beat a Trump-endorsed Army veteran and election denier, Joe Kent, in what the nation calls, quote, the biggest upset of the 2022 midterms. Congresswoman-elect Marie Glusenkamp-Perez joins us now. Congresswoman-elect, first of all, congratulations. Second of all, I wanted to have you on because I read that interview in The Nation, which was really interesting. Democrats traditionally do not do well in rural districts. What made your campaign different, and how can other rural Democrats hopefully apply that to their campaigns in the future? Well, I mean, I think one of the critical differences is, you know, my biography. I live in a rural district. I live in rural Skamania County in Timber County. I work in the trades. I own an auto repair and a machine shop with my husband. Um, you know, we're a small business that, like you said, we've been broken into four times, had another break-in yesterday. Um, and I think that really 
connects with Americans. Like we just want a Congress that works again. We want a Congress that looks like America, that understands what it's like to try and run a small business uh, in this economy and and make a place for the trades. Do you think, speaking of your, your machine shop being broken into, do you think that too many national Democrats are, are too dismissive of the concerns of American citizens when it comes to crime, pointing to statistics and telling them that they're not experiencing what they're experiencing? Yeah, I think that's a fatal flaw in the Democratic strategy is people are always trying to explain things to people. They're obsessed with, you know, being right all the time. And, um, you know, I think that it's important to understand the the underlying feelings around an issue and not just the statistics, because those statistics, unless you understand the facts on the ground, those statistics can sometimes be hollow. You beat your opponent, Republican Joe Kent, by only 2,600 votes yesterday. Uh, despite being an election liar, he finally conceded after the recount. Are you confident you can represent a historically red district, especially with so many people in your district willing to put aside the fact that he was an election liar and vote for him? It was pretty close. Yeah, you know, I'm here to represent everyone, not just the people who voted for me. I think we have a lot of shared interests. Like I said, we all want a country that works again. Um, We want opportunity for our kids you know, I'm part of the generation that, uh, you know, work as hard as I want. I'm not going to make as much money as my parents. Um, and I think we're seeing an increasing, um, I guess, disenchantment, you know, uh, with the, the way things are working for folks. Um, you know, I'm running on really bread and butter issues of right to repair laws or something that are really critical to me. And one of the things I'll be working hard to pass uh, in Washington, D.C., Let's talk about that, because that's one of the interesting things about your appeal in your rural district, this right to repair legislation. Probably a lot of people right now watching this don't know what that is. It essentially allows Americans to fix their own stuff from cell phones to tractors, despite attempts by corporate America and corporations internationally to try to stop that. Tell us more about that and why it's so important in rural districts such as yours. Um, I'm sorry, Jake. I actually, the internet quality cut out here. I, I didn't, could you repeat that question? Tell us about right to repair, what it means. Yeah, so right to repair bills are, um, you know, we in America have the belief that we can fix our own things. Um, but increasingly, the terms of servants and contracts uh, exclude people from that right. Um, so you don't have the right to fix your own tractor, your own iPhone, home medical equipment. Um, so it, it's not just about cars about everything. And, and we're seeing, for instance, BMW not having dipsticks in their cars anymore. Um, it's a disenfranchisement from the technology we rely on. And, and I and many, many people believe that DIY is in our DNA. The middle class relies on things being uh, repairable and maintainable. And it feels like we're getting shoved into a culture of, of consumption where we are not able to fix the things and the technology we rely on. And I think that's a crisis for the middle class and for American culture. Democratic Congresswoman-elect from Washington State, Marie Glusenkamp-Perez, thank you so much. Let us know when you're here. We'll have you in studio. Got a lot of issues to talk to you about, and you seem to be a very interesting voice. Thank you so much, Jake. All right. Merry Christmas to you. The Chinese government says there are only a handful of COVID deaths. So why then are Chinese crematoriums overwhelmed? We're going live to Beijing next. Stay with us. Our health lead now, just two weeks after China relaxed its strict zero COVID policies, cases are now skyrocketing, overwhelming that country's healthcare system and even putting a strain on crematoriums. 
But, perhaps not surprisingly, the Chinese government is painting a different picture, reporting only a few COVID deaths since easing restrictions. CNN's Selena Wang is live for us from Beijing, an area that's experiencing its worst outbreak since the pandemic began. Selena, tell us what you're seeing. Yeah, Jake, I mean, the picture on the ground looks very different from the government narrative. So I went to a major crematorium in Beijing this week, and it was very packed. The parking lot was completely full. Several people there told me that their loved ones had died from COVID, and employees said they've been swamped with work. I also saw these metal containers that were filling up with yellow body bags, and I saw workers loading more coffins in. I spoke to some of the stores nearby selling funerary items. They said they're much busier than normal. And I also stopped by a COVID-designated hospital where a work told me elderly patients with COVID are dying every single day. But despite all of that, China has only reported less than 10 total COVID deaths for this entire month. And amid the skepticism, both at home and abroad over those numbers, the government now says it is changing the definition of COVID-19 deaths to only include patients who died of respiratory failure directly caused by the virus. So, Jake, that means that those who died because of another underlying condition will not be counted as a COVID death, even if they were sick with COVID at the time. That goes against the World Health Organization's guidelines, and the WHO says it will severely underestimate the true death toll of COVID in China. And a new study from the University of Hong Kong suggests that China could have nearly one million COVID deaths following this abrupt change from the country's strict and severe zero COVID strategy. Is China underprepared for this wave of infections and deaths? Well, that is the resounding agreement from health experts that China has basically squandered the last few years while it was enforcing zero COVID. It did not vaccinate enough of the population. It did not boost up its hospital capacity enough or stock up on enough antivirals. And so now the country is scrambling to do all of these things. But that reopening, it was abrupt. It was unexpected. It was like virtually overnight, this country went from harsh lockdowns to just let it rip. And we are seeing hospitals coming under major pressure. Fever and cold medicine is running out. The local versions of Tylenol and Advil here are pretty much impossible to get at drugstores. And some local governments are even resorting to rationing the amount of medicine for sale down to the exact number of pills. And that vaccination rate, it is still lagging for people over 60. Only about 42% of those over 80 have received a booster shot. And experts say that third dose is necessary to get enough protection in China since they are using less effective vaccines compared to the mRNA ones used overseas, Jake. All right, Selena Wang in Beijing for us. Thank you so much. Turning now to our world lead where women in Afghanistan are protesting against the Taliban's latest crackdown on their rights and freedoms. The Taliban... This week banned all female students from receiving college educations, a devastating move that some fear will ultimately be extended for girls below the sixth grade when it comes to their education. CNN's Christiana Mampour reports on yet another setback for Afghan women and girls since the U.S. left. Another week, another dramatic reversal of women's rights in Afghanistan. The Taliban's new edict suspending university education for females is a major setback for millions of women there. And the Ministry of Education says the rule will take immediate effect. There is no life for women in Afghanistan anymore since they've closed all the routes towards success for women. When the doors of schools and universities are closed for the women who are half the society, It means the process of human evolution and development is paralyzed. 
Young women showing up to class at universities across the country are now being told to go back home. Even worse, fears the ban could extend to elementary schools. The principals of three Kabul girls' schools tell CNN the Taliban have written to them, telling them to shut down. Students quickly showed their opposition to the new law, both men and women, including at Nangahar University in the city of Jalalabad. According to Reuters, male medical students there even walked out of their final exams to support their female classmates. They can't go to school? Why? They cannot work? Why? Could somebody, somebody please tell me why? This new policy is the latest announcement on what many are calling the systematic expulsion of Afghan women from all aspects of public life. And when I traveled to Kabul this spring, I confronted a Taliban official the very day they demanded that all women in work, even on television, had to be masked. Afghan women are afraid that this is the beginning of your efforts to erase them from the workspace. Back then, the most senior Taliban government official, Sirajuddin Haqqani, told me that he would safeguard the rights of Afghan women, including the right to an education. There is no one who opposes education for women. And already girls are allowed to go to school up to grade six. What I am saying to you is that very soon you will hear very good news about this issue, God willing. But that promise never materialized. And this week, women's and girls' rights have taken a major step backwards. In fact, officials who pledged they would be different than Taliban 1.0 are now accelerating their march back to that same harsh version. This is my interview with a Taliban official back in 1996. A lot of people want to know what you're going to do about the women issue. What about women's education, girls' education, women working, widows who have no other way to support themselves? I know that, especially in Western news media, it's a propaganda against that, that, that we are against women's education, which is not right, which is not correct. But the girls can't go to school. We've been to schools here that are all closed. Since the Taliban came back to power last year, women have been banned from most workplaces, from politics, and from entering public paths and public baths. They even now require a male guardian for long-distance travel. More pragmatic Taliban sources tell CNN these bans come straight from the Taliban's so-called supreme leader, Emir Ahunzadeh, and his kitchen cabinet based in Kandahar. They form the core of the hardline religious leadership. The United Nations says it's outraged and is calling on the Taliban to reverse the decision. The United States said that it would further alienate the Taliban from the international community and deny them the legitimacy and recognition they crave. In the last two decades since the Taliban was first driven out of Afghanistan, many urban women were excelling in school and in the workforce, contributing to the country's economy, society, and culture. Now that half the population is being erased from public view and public works, this country is falling ever faster, ever deeper into extreme poverty and hunger as another bleak winter takes hold. Christiana Manpour, CNN, London. And our thanks to Christiana Manpour for that report. They aren't the headlines an incoming congressman wants. New resume contradictions raising serious questions about the character of the newly elected Republican congressman from New York. Stay with us. 
In our politics lead, Republican Congressman-elect George Santos was already facing something of an avalanche of scrutiny over allegations that he falsified multiple parts of his biography and his resume. And now a CNN K-File investigation has found his claims that his grandparents, quote, survived the Holocaust by fleeing to escape the Nazi regime are contradicted by multiple sources and records reviewed by genealogists. This latest revelation coming just after another examination found the education and employment history from his resume was inconsistent with public documents and court records. Let's discuss. Heidi, I'm not even sure how to properly characterize somebody who lies about being the descendant of Holocaust survivors. Um, What do you make of this story in general? Obviously, the New York Times first broke it after Santos was elected. Uh, And the silence from Republicans. Well, the first reaction was, how did this happen? In an age where candidates are just from out of the gate, given opposition research combs by the opposition party. That said, it was a short election. So now I think the most important question, Jake, is going forward on how did he make his money and what don't we know? Because this guy appears to have gone from being evicted and having really no assets on record in 2020 now to having a million dollar apartment in Rio, uh, 750000 in cash for his campaign. Uh, that's the real problem for McCarthy, because right now McCarthy's not going to say anything. He needs every single vote he can get coming up for speaker. He's not going to say anything. These ethics investigations take a long time, but Letitia James is onto it. Uh, there will be investigations and eventually he may be faced with having to weigh in on this. We do have a record in Congress of some members, uh, Jim Trafficant from Ohio comes to mind, who stay in office despite being in prison. So there are <laughs> characters in Congress. And, and Senator McConnell said that. He said that the Republican recruiting season, these were not the best uh, candidates that he had. All eyes, though, were on Herschel Walker because that, would, that seat would flip the balance of the Senate. No one really anticipated that New York would collapse as a blue wall and that that is where you would have candidates who not only ran as Republicans and won, but showed that the New York Republican, rather Democratic Party, was in disarray. Well, in addition to the New York Democratic Party being disarray, I think it also shows, sadly, uh, the demise of local news, right. uh, because there are there are two we used to be great newspapers in Long Island, where this congressional seat is, and local newspapers are just dying and being starved of advertising dollars, which means that reporters get laid off. Right, right. I mean, it's always going to be a matter of basic resources. And when there are fewer resources, um, you have to kind of prioritize what you cover. And a race that wasn't the top tier of everyone's radar, that's something that in terms of reporting resources and and political resources would be deprioritized slightly. Um, I think going forward, what will be really interesting to see is how Republican leaders react. I mean, obviously, we know that they have not condemned or they have not said much, if at all, about this action. We know Mr. Santos will speak about this next week. I would guess that perhaps he just kind of doubles down and defends his record, even though it does seem to be non-existent at this point. But it's it's it, it remains to be seen how the leadership will respond. But I would be surprised if they rebuke him for the misrepresentations that he had made to the public. Apparently, he's going to weigh in in about a week. And some of the replies under that tweet, you just have to go look at it for yourself. They say, you need a week to decide whether you're Jewish? What's the answer? Yes right. or no? Right. He's made a lot of claims about a lot of things in his history that the New York Times uncovered aren't true. I remember one of the first stories K-File broke for CNN was a Democratic uh, official who had plagiarized part of a, of a graduate paper that he'd written. And that led to the end of his political career. But now we're in 2022. And I feel like 
you can almost get away with anything as long as you just stick it out. Well, I guess the question is, he has gotten away with, allegedly, things thus far because the opposition campaign and the local media did not do their jobs. And so, in addition to him allegedly be deceiving voters, all, there are supposed to be all of these checks in the system where if you run for office and you've got anything in your past, it's supposed to be dug up. You know, this was alleged supposedly in a DCCC opposition research document about him, a lot of these allegations, but they were buried. It was like 87 pages and it was buried under a lot of he's just a standard issue MAGA Republican. And I think part of the problem is when you just say, oh, we're just going to use the same bucket of arguments against all of these people at once and just kind of give into the polarization. Uh, it means that the stuff that was, you know, on page 50 or wherever it was in this report that's actually meaningful winds up getting glossed over. Uh, so we don't know if he's survived yet, because, again, there could be further ethics investigations. This may not just be him being a fabulous, but if he's broken laws, that's a very different matter. Um, but I wouldn't say anybody has survived quite yet. He hasn't even been sworn into Congress yet, Jake. Well, I'm just saying, like, I, we'll see what happens. It wasn't disqualifying, let's put it that way, right? Yeah, I, I mean, mean, we're not necessarily hearing uproar locally, but that's part of the challenge. How would we even know about local uproar, given the lack of resources and media attention on how local voters work. But we've seen this time and time again with a certain set of Republican candidates that as long as you toe the line on key specific issues, your character doesn't matter. Uh, How you approach lies and the truth doesn't matter anymore. Let me disagree with that a little. Madison Cawthorn will not be coming back to this new Congress. You know, there there are examples of of folks who... Because he was defeated in a primary. Correct. And and it would not surprise me if this gentleman winds up getting seated in Congress and surviving all sorts of ethics investigations. It would not surprise me if the NRCC is not out there looking for, please, goodness, anybody, anybody, anybody to run in that seat. But what happened with Cawthorn, just to go back, and he had had been embarrassing his party quite a bit, and I believe what happened is Senator Tom Tillis, the Republican senator from North Carolina, helped get a bunch of money together to fund an opponent Mm -hmm. in the primary, right? I mean, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't like you're an embarrassment. You're saying, you know, you visited Hitler's nest. Uh, We want you out of Congress right now. It was, okay, well, we're going to do this methodically. My point is the money is, the good money is always on, on the politician. If they deny it, being able to survive and stick around, at least until somebody figures out a way to get them out on their own timeline. No? I think a good parallel is the Herschel Walker uh, race that we just saw because it was two candidates that on paper had a similar identity, which is in this, ca- in this race as well, you had two white, male, gay candidates. And so that, that identity piece, when that gets, I guess, eliminated from the conversation, really has people looking at, oh, well, what is, what is this, what's the R or D next to their name going to get me? And we're seeing some really interesting voting patterns There are as a some result. observations being made about what the trade-offs Republican Party is making in order to try and diversify um, its party, because the, that's the thing that all of these candidates have in common, is they represent some minority group. And at the same time, they have what in past elections would have been considered fatal flaws. Interesting. Um, despite an overwhelming positive response to the and bipartisan reception to Zelensky yesterday, um, the reaction by, by some uh, MAGA Republicans in the chamber, at least, uh, was notable, refusing to stand, refusing to applaud. Uh, McCarthy repeated afterwards his line about, um, we're not going to give Ukraine a blank check, which literally no one is proposing that they give. Um, what do you think is going to happen? Is there going to be a change in policy when House Republicans take over? Well, it's not going to be something that's immediate action for some time because the Congress is poised to pass an additional $45 billion of aid to Ukraine. 
the administration is confident that that money is going to last for some time. But we don't know how long this war is going to persist in Ukraine. And we don't know how much more resources that uh, Zelensky Ukraine will need. So that's why I think his line yesterday to House Republic or to the House or to the Congress when he said this money is not charity. It is for global security and democracy. It is being handled well. That was a message directly to House Republicans who had been saying we want inspector generals. We want oversight of this money. And you see that declining appetite to fund this effort abroad. So I think at at this point, if and when there is another need for more aid, um, because of the Democratic support and because of the parts of the Republican Party that feel strong about this, it still will be likely to pass, but it'll just be harder because of that growing kind of America first pocket. This is a situation in which every week matters, right? 300,000 rounds of artillery with one howitzer usually takes a year to produce. They go through it in two weeks in the Ukraine, right? And there is a time and place to talk about the military-industrial complex. $14 trillion in Afghanistan. What did that get us, right? But the $60 billion that have gone to Ukraine is a drop in the bucket for just the Pentagon in one year, let alone what the United States is capable of doing when we're in peacetime. We're at peace. Thanks one and all. If I don't see you, Merry Christmas. Great to see you all. Coming up after making the two-and-a-half-month journey from Venezuela to the Rio Grande, one family crossed into the U.S., but now they find themselves back in Mexico, their harrowing journey that is not over. That's next. In our national lead now, the future of Title 42, that's the Trump-era pandemic policy, which permits border agents to quickly expel asylum seekers from the U.S., is now in the hands of the U.S. Supreme Court. And while this policy is still in place, most migrants are willing to take the risk anyway, despite the uncertainty. CNN's Ed Lavendera highlights one migrant family's perilous journey. When Jason Bidguez and his wife Zulema walked across the Rio Grande with their two children last week, the family felt like they had finally escaped their lives in Venezuela's socialist nightmare. They were overwhelmed with tears of relief and joy. They survived an often terrifying two-and-a-half-month journey, traveling from South America into Central America and Mexico. Did you think reaching this point was going to be so emotional? He says they never thought the journey from Venezuela would be so painful. Zulema tearfully said they took this risk for their children. The family stepped across the Rio Grande thinking they had reached the mountaintop. ¿Dónde estás? Where are you? The family is now in Mexico City. Jason says the day after the family turned themselves in to U.S. border agents, they were flown to South Texas and bussed across the border to Matamoros. He says Mexican officials then drove them and a bus full of migrants to Mexico City. It took just five days to get pushed back down the mountain. This has to be very confusing for you. I don't understand it, he says. We were all scared on the airplane. We didn't know what was going to happen, and we didn't even get a chance to ask for asylum. There are still hundreds of migrants lining up at the border wall to get into the United States, but getting in is far from guaranteed. The Department of Homeland Security reports that over the last week here in the El Paso area alone, 3,400 migrants have been expelled under Title 42. Sitting down, following instructions. Thousands of migrants keep turning themselves into border authorities. The public health restriction known as Title 42 
is still being used to quickly expel migrants. It's a confusing system and difficult for those migrants to figure out who stays and who goes. Jason and Zulema now have to figure out what to do next. When I saw you crossing into the U.S., you were crying. Have you lost faith? I'm an optimist, he says. I hope to touch someone's heart. My wife and son are depressed. We just want an opportunity. Right before Jason, Zulema, and their children crossed the Rio Grande last week, they were so hopeful they snapped this family selfie. Jason says his family will not forget touching U.S. soil, even if it was just for a brief moment. He says it was a strong blow to be sent back to Mexico, uh, but that he doesn't want to give up and that he wants to do whatever is necessary to give his wife and children a better life. And Jake, here on the streets of El Paso tonight, a troubling situation. In the last day or so, we've noticed that, that the dynamics here have changed quite a bit. Many of the migrants we had seen had documents uh, that they had already been processed by Border Patrol. But all of these people, the majority of them that we've spoken with uh, throughout the day, now show uh, that they do not have documents. Um, and that means that they're not able to get into the shelter space and that is troubling because tonight temperatures will get down to about 19 degrees and many of the people you see standing around here around us here tonight on the streets uh, just have nowhere to go right now. Jake? An absolute humanitarian crisis at Lavendera in El Paso, Texas. Thank you for that story. Turning to our politics lead, Congress looks to be on track to prevent a government shutdown. The House of Representatives is set to vote on final passage for the $1.7 trillion spending bill tomorrow morning. There are some notable absences in this legislation, including efforts to protect Afghan allies who helped save the lives of U.S. service members during that country's war. The Afghan Adjustment Act did not make it into the spending bill. That legislation would have given evacuees from Afghanistan a pathway to lawful permanent residency before their temporary status expires in 2023. A letter sent just Saturday urged Congress to act and pass that bill. It was signed by nearly two dozen former top leaders of the U.S. military. Retired Admiral Mike Mellon served as chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. He signed on to that level and told me this week, not helping these Afghans now may hurt American forces in the future. Listen. If we're unable to support those who gave so much, uh, others will look at us in the future and uh, we might fall short. In gathering that support, uh, we work hard to take care of our friends and our allies, and nobody was closer to us on the ground in particular in Afghanistan than those who supported us. Admiral Mullen called helping the Afghans a moral imperative. There is no word on where there may be an attempt at similar legislation. There was one notable amendment that did make it into the $1.7 trillion spending bill. This after an urgent plea from the wife of a U.S. Navy lieutenant, her name is Brittany Alconis. She appeared here on the lead back in August after protesting at the White House, trying to get the attention of President Biden for months. She's been begging for the Pentagon to make an exception to a rule so that she could, she and her kids could be financially supported. Her husband, Lieutenant Ridge Alconis, is serving a three-year prison sentence in Japan. In May of last year, he suffered a medical condition while driving on a family trip near Mount Fuji in Japan. The car crashed and sadly two other people died. Between insurance money and donations, Lieutenant Alconis 
paid more than $1 million to the families of the victims, which is an act that is customary in Japan. But his paid leave was set to expire next week. Three days after Christmas, his wife Brittany and their children would have been stuck in Japan with no funds coming in. Her story caught the attention of Republican Senator Mike Lee of Utah. I spoke to both of them yesterday about their frustration trying to get the Pentagon to make an exception for their family. Take a listen. It has seemed from day one that they have worked against us. Um, And as people ask why, as Senator Lee asks why, um, it seems what it always comes down to is we're afraid of offending Japan and um, they're afraid of, of setting a precedent, but I, I don't think that's a valid reason. We've been told uh, at every turn of events that this is unprecedented, that they've never seen anything like this happen in the 60 plus years that the U.S. government has, our, our military has been here in Japan. Uh, so to say that dealing with this in an unprecedented manner this unprecedented situation uh, is going to set a standard for the future. Just it's a weak argument. I was told that the Department of Defense would act on this as soon as possible, and that stretched out into nearly six months. Eventually, the department told me that they lacked the authority under 37 U.S.C. Section 503 to grant this relief. It's not true. I strongly disagree with that. Shouldn't have taken this long. It shouldn't require an act of Congress because the fact is many decades ago, Congress gave this authority to the Secretary of Defense. Good news for the Alcones family. The Senate did pass that amendment offered from Senator Mike Lee. And once the House passes the final spending bill and President Biden signs the law, a spokesperson for the Alcones family says the family can move back into military housing in Japan. Coming up in the Situation Room, the January 6th committee releases even more transcripts. Stay with us. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. 